The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Getting In. It is a beautiful day here in Massachusetts, finally, the kind of day we've been waiting for for a long time. No more snow. I know that was a few episodes back we didn't have any more snow, but I like to officially report there's still no more snow. We have a great lineup of topics for you today. We're going to discuss the basics of saving for college with former Southern New Hampshire University financial aid officer Alex Bickford. We also have a really great segment on essays of infamy. So my colleague and former Reed and University of Chicago admissions officer Sally Ganga is here to trade stories with me. And we're going to tell you about the bad, the ugly, and the unbelievable things that students have written about over the years. Once we're done, you're going to have some really good insight into what not to do in your essay. At least I hope that you will. And I hope that you will avoid being one of these students. But before we get to all of that, let's talk college admissions by the numbers. There are a lot of them in the admissions process. We have GPAs, standardized test scores, admit rates, class rankings, all kinds of numbers. And although you generally tend to think of numbers as being pretty black and white, there actually is a lot of gray area when it comes to numbers and admissions. I'm thrilled for that reason that Julia Jones, who's a former senior admissions officer at Brandeis University and college coaches list guru, is here to explain it all to us. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So when I call you our list guru, I don't think our (laughs) listeners fully appreciate what that means. But basically... It feels like Julia has a hand in every list that we create here at College Coach, every college list. And what, how many did we do last year? Maybe close to 6,000 or was it more than that? Um, it was, that was about right. I mean, it was, a, it, uh, we do a lot. <laughs> um, you know, we do a lot and, and it's a big process. It's a team process too. And there's a lot of pieces that go into it. So, um, I've been kind of managing that process for quite a few years at College Coach and, and, um, you know, and, and again, there's a lot of details and a lot of things to, to pay attention to. So this is exactly why I wanted Julia to be here today. And um, so we are going to talk through some of the different numbers because while it's tempting to imagine that you could just do a calculation or two and then come up with a great list of schools based on where your numbers suggest you could get in, the fact is that there's quite a bit of nuance to almost all of these numbers. So why don't we start with the biggest number of all, and that is GPA, grade point average, and um, yeah. what students and parents who are listening out there need to know about calculating a GPA. 
Sure. Yeah, that's a great question because it is the best place to start. It's it's clearly you know one of the most important um, elements of um, of the college process. The first thing that colleges look at is that transcript, and you know it, it, colleges handle the GPA. Some of them do it differently. I mean, I think that's it, it's some will take the GPA that the high school provides, and every high school usually does. Or most high schools actually um, will calculate a GPA, um, but those can be you know wildly different from high school to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest difference is usually that some of them are weighted, meaning that the high school, um, you know, that the, there'll be extra weight, uh, maybe an extra half a point or a point given to um, a, a course that's either an honors level or an advanced placement level. Um, and uh, and so the GPA is, you, you may find that even though it may be on a 4.0 scale, you could have a 4.7 or even a 5.2 GPA yep. um, if it was weighted. Um, unweighted is pretty much, um, there is no extra weight given. It's really just the grades. Um, on a 4.0 scale. Um, and so, but even if you have a high school GPA that's unweighted, um, it may or may not be uh, what colleges kind of want to evaluate themselves. And so that's why mm-hmm. a lot of colleges will kind of recalculate. Um, and many of them do that to get not only an unweighted GPA to kind of get everybody on the same, um, the same playing field, that same scale, but also um, really to take into account what colleges are most concerned with, and that's the core subjects. Um, the, you know, there are five main academic areas, math, English, science, uh, social studies or history, and um, foreign language. Um, you know, electives, um, while they have their place in, in, the, um, in your high school years and, and definitely have its place on a transcript, they are not of huge concern to colleges. So colleges tend to not include elective courses, mm-hmm. you know, health, PE, or even some um, art or music courses. Um, in the GPA calculations. And that's where sometimes it can really differ from, you know, the, what colleges calculate versus what the high school provides because, you know, a lot of times, and I get this when I talk to students or the students that I work with, I may say, hey, you know, this, you've, we've got, you know, a B-plus um, average here that I've calculated, and that may be very different. They may be thinking, you know, they may, their high school GPA may be more, uh, may be higher, um, yep. but it's also because they've, they've calculated in certain courses that colleges aren't as, as focused on. Exactly, like art and music and sometimes gym and things like that. And it can yep. inflate a GPA sometimes, and as can the weighting. Um, I know there yep. were even, when I was at Penn, there were even a handful of schools that would put the weighted grade on the transcript so that when you looked at the grade in a course, they might have 120 in a class, mm-hmm. which obviously doesn't compute. You can't possibly really get a 120. So we would be looking for the unweighted version of that grade. And um, that could sometimes take a student from an A average to a B average um, for exactly. us. Which brings yeah. us to the next piece of this <laughs> equation, because I'm sure that everyone who's out there listening is saying, or for those of you who are worried about that, well, I worked really hard. I took uh-huh. advanced level courses and I was counting on that weighting. What does it mean if um, colleges are unweighting those grades? And so that takes us to the whole question of rigor. Right. And so it's what true. Can and tell it's, us and about I think, that? yeah. The way that you want to look at it is, is you're kind of evaluating your whole um, application, your whole picture of, of who you are as a student in the way that colleges will. And, you know, for, while it's true, they're going to take kind of a snapshot using your unweighted GPA, th- you know, they are, unweighted GPAs are not created equal. So you could have two students with, with the same, you know, 3.5 GPA and, you know, but the, the rigor of the curriculum is so important and that could, that could change drastically how a college is going to look at you 
value and, and the additional points that they may give in the process, in their own calculations, um, in their review process based on what you've taken. And that can be everything from, you know, taking honors courses um, or whatever your high school offers in the way of advanced or honors courses, um, AP or IB courses, um, or even, you know, taking, getting as far as calculus or taking advanced level math courses, um, all four years of a foreign language, things that mm-hmm. kind of how are you going above and beyond just what you're required for graduation? And I know, you know, that you've talked a lot on the show um, in previous shows about rigor and the importance of it. And, and that's not lost at all in the, you know, in, in um, the, the process here. It's, you know, for GPA, it's really just becomes almost a separate, you know, evaluative uh, piece that, um, that, that gets added to it. Exactly. I would say at Penn, we unweighted all the grades and calculated a new GPA for the student. But we also Mm -hmm. separately, like you said, it becomes a separate evaluative point. We separately looked at the rigor of the curriculum and the student needed both the grades and the ideally the highest rigor available marking in order to truly be competitive from an academic perspective. So let's move on to the number that I think most people focus on. So we have identified the GPA is the number one most important factor. But I often feel like people think that the test score is the number one most important numerical factor. So let's talk test scores and how to take a look at those numbers. Right. And it's important, no no doubt, for the majority mm-hmm. of schools. There are quite a few, uh, there's actually about 800 schools out there that are testing optional. But for the most part, as SATs or ACTs are required by colleges and, and are a part of the process. Um, and so, and I think it's a, you know, it is a good way, you know, as, as when you're looking for numbers, obviously, it's, it's uh, you know, a test that everybody takes. So it kind of puts everybody on that same, um, same playing field as well, mm-hmm. you know, fair or not, good or bad. Um, yep. And um, so I think it does, they do matter, and it can be a really useful tool in figuring out, okay, you know, when you're building a college list, uh, where am I? You know, am I, um, you know, right smack in the middle of the average, the middle 50% range of testing? Am I above it? Am I below it? Um, But if you're not, you know, if you're not in that sweet spot in that middle range, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're out for the count. Um, And if you are in that middle range, it doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically in either. So, um, you know, I think it can be a good way to at least get a one sense of, okay, so in this respect, in this testing um, uh, angle, I am, you know, this is, I'm either above, at, or below the average um, for accepted students. And, and colleges all report that. You can find that data pretty easily. Um, and But again, they're usually prone to report more of the middle 50% range rather than a, num- a, you know, a, a median or a number in the middle um, because, they again, they know that they too are aware it's not always, um, you know, an exact science, um, especially when it comes to testing. Exactly. I mean, very, very infrequently, almost never, in fact, would you ever find a school saying, you must have at, you must have this test score. If you do, you're in. Right. And if you don't, you're out. That's right. very infrequent that you will see that. So the sure, next item sure. on our list to talk about is not necessarily super numerical. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it because we've done segments on extracurricular activities before. But I do think it's important to understand how that can be numerically assessed or looked at as part of the numbers overall when you think about putting together a college list. And that's extracurricular activities. 
Right. And I think, and again, it's a, it's an important way for students and, and, um, and parents to really evaluate, um, and really kind of be objective about, about what yep. you've done. You know, this is a point where you can kind of, you know, look at your list of extracurriculars as colleges will, and, and many of them won't have a lot of time to go, you know, into huge depth either. So it's really looking at it at a glance and saying, okay, what's, what's there? Is there leadership? Is there, um, you know, are there things that kind of make me stand out? Because that's where, you know, the, the scale can tip in one direction or another, even if you're kind of right in the middle and have the, hit the average GPA and hit the average SAT scores, you know, testing, um, the extracurriculars, uh, rather, um, it kind of goes into that, what, what's, what are you bringing to the campus? What are the things yep. that, that make you kind of uh, stand out? So I do think that it's, you know, whether you can kind of think about it on a point system, okay, so maybe if kind of one is just, you know, very average activities, things that you've done maybe um, throughout the year, and but, you know, maybe adding an extra point or two in your mind if, if you've got some things that kind of go above and beyond that leadership or in, in multiple areas, you know, really significant accomplishments um, that, you know, you know that that will kind of make you a stronger read in the, in the process. Exactly. And I think it's important for us to point out that there are places where just being generally involved is going to be just fine. And then there are places where they're going to really look for a significantly above and beyond. So the more selective you get, the more important and critically you have to look at that list of things that you've accomplished or that your child has accomplished. Sure. All right. And so I think we've, it's also it's yep. a great point because I, mm-hmm. I do think that there's, um, you know, looking at the t- when you're looking at certain types of schools too, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, looking at larger schools that, um, you know, that are kind of forced to go more by the numbers. So if you kind of look, you know, fit in their profile number wise, you're probably um, good to go. Whereas, you know, for smaller schools, some schools that have, are able to take a more holistic approach and if they are more selective, again, you've really got, um, you know, then, then you know that the personals are going to ha- matter that much more. Right. Um, so, yeah. Exactly. So now we've kind of, ideally, um, you sat down, you've kind of calculated a GPA for yourself, maybe an unweighted one. If your school typically does a, a weighted one, maybe you want to calculate a weighted one for yourself as well, at least just to understand the difference between the two. You've taken a look and honestly assessed your rigor. I have a, a relatively rigorous curriculum. It's a pretty average curriculum. It's the most rigorous curriculum. It's slightly below average. You know, taking an honest look at that, You've looked at your test scores and have a sense of where those are at. Um, you've evaluated, as, as Julia suggested, and taken a critical look at your extracurricular activities. What do you do next? There are a couple of different places, I think, that people tend to go to first when thinking about putting together a list. Um, mm-hmm. So let's start maybe with Naviance, yeah. which is available to a lot of students. Great. Yeah. And Naviance is a wonderful tool. So if you have access to it through your high school, um, definitely make use of it. It's, it's really, um, because the reality is too, is that you're looked at in the context of your high school and in your high school group. So, you know, the beauty of Naviance is that you can look and see how you compare to students, um, over like, the, I think it goes back five or six years of applicants who have applied to a particular college from that high school and what their numbers were, what their GPA, their SAT or AC scores were and what their decisions were. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's amazing. It can be a little addictive. You can really get, get hooked into looking at all the different graphs and you can plot out on, and they basically have like a scatter, a scattergram where it'll show you on a graph GPA and SATs and it'll show you all, no names of course, but all of the, you know, the decisions over the past few years, who was accepted, where they were, and you can see where you fall in that mix as well. So, um, but it's important to really, you know, to, to look at that with a critical eye 
apply and, and know that, again, if you're right in the middle of all the accepts, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a slam dunk school for you. It means that, again, you're kind of in that average. And so that's where you may want to look at things, um, the more personal, you know, some of the extracurriculars and things that are going to kind of tip that scale for you. Um, and so if you're at the very high end of the accepts, then you can kind of start to think that this is going to be more of a likely um, school for me. So um, so Naviance is a great tool, and, and it definitely um, is, you know, can really be helpful in, in evaluating this and looking at the numbers and, and really getting a sense of, um, of where you fall in relation to, your, uh, to other applicants from your high school. Exactly. Um, I think it's a great tool, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, oh. I bet you were about to hit on this, so I'll throw it back to you to cover, but what about, you know, you're looking at your dream school, and <laughs> boy, you don't look like you're competitive, but hey, one kid a couple of years <laughs> ago must have had your similar scores and grades, and yep. they got in, so what does that mean for you? Right. There's always going to be outliers, and that's, you know, sometimes you can see that, and you'll see this, like, sort of one random accept amidst all the, you know, the denies, or or the vice or vice versa, you know, something that that uh, deny amidst all of the accepts, and and you know that's where you can only do so much by the numbers, and so if you see that that accept, um, you know, and that's really low when it comes to GPA and SAT scores, you can probably bet that there's something else happening that you know that was a student who might have been, um, you know, had some other reason for getting in, and so you know, kind of what we like to call a hook in in admission, something that um, that that uh, you know tip the scale, and the same thing for you know, for uh, uh, a, a deny that maybe amidst all the accepts, it could be that there was something else in the application that really raised a red flag. Um, I know you guys are going to be talking later about uh, <laughs> what not that to do for the essays, and sometimes that yep. can be what will do it. So, yes. yeah, so I definitely you want to look at it that way and know that, again, you're looking for trends, not, you know, not picking out every, every possible decision because you just don't know what happened in the committee. Exactly. And you don't know what was in that file. And the only other right. thing I want to say about Naviance, and because we're getting uh, close to the end of our time and I have, we have one more thing I really want to talk about, is just that you've heard us talk about all the different numbers that go into this. And then what clearly Naviance only takes into consideration is a GPA and test scores. Yeah. And so that's not telling you the whole picture. Um, and mm-hmm. it's important to always have that in mind. But... Sure. Um, that's Naviance. Let's talk about the College Board, which is a place that I do um, recommend that families look at. There's a lot of great information about a lot of colleges on there, data that they collect. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that it can sometimes be misleading. Or you go and you visit a school and they tell you that their average GPA score or GPA is, you know, something like a 3.8. And I know that I have students getting in with 2.8s. And so I have a panicked family in my office saying, well, why would you even suggest we go there? I mean, we're clearly not competitive. So where, yeah. how do you look at those numbers that schools report and that you'll see on College Board? Right, right. It's hard because I think, you know, colleges, what they're reporting, sometimes it's because they're trying to, you know, to capture a wide range of families. Sometimes it's to make themselves look a little bit more selective and more attractive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think you have to look at, at everything together. And, and, and again, it kind of comes down to um, looking at the, um, you know, the, the average GPA and really making sure, again, that you've 
you know, that what they're, whatever, sometimes they will report, okay, this is a weighted GPA, or sometimes you can dig a little deeper and see, you know, what are they, what, what's, what's the, um, you know, is it weighted or unweighted that they're, or do they recalculate? Um, looking at that sort of mid SAT range, and, and I think sometimes it is looking at the type of school as well. Look at the acceptance rate, because sometimes yes. that can tell you a lot. Um, you know, the more, the lower the acceptance rate, the less predictable it can be. So you have to um, really adjust accordingly. So it's, it's, it can be tricky looking at that data. I think it's the same concept of, you know, really making sure that if you're in the range, it doesn't, you know, understanding what the, what the being average or being in the, you know, have, being close to the average accepted GPA and SAT score, what that means and what it doesn't mean. Um, right. and, and then, again, going back to the things that aren't going to be reported in terms of numbers um, to see, uh, you know, how you, how you might fare, you know, just in terms of your extracurriculars and your writing ability and things that are also very much going to be assessed, especially at the more selective colleges. Right. So bottom line here, I think, from both Julia and from me is that the numbers tell you part of the story, but only part of the story. Um, right. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, my pleasure. Ab- Thanks so much. Great. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back soon. Um, there will be no end to the number of questions people have about lists. Um, after the <laughs> no break, we're talking, <laughs> we're talking saving for college. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to break right now, but when we come back, we're talking saving for college. So if you're a parent with students approaching their college years, you're not going to want to miss it. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Here is my guest right now to talk about saving for college is new dad, Alex Bickford. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think the the first thing that comes to many parents' minds upon the birth of their first child has got to be, oh my God, now we need to start saving for college. So tell me, it's been a while since the birth of my son, but did that happen to you a couple of weeks ago when your son was born? 
So that's, it, it's funny that you asked that, and, and obviously being in the business of, of college and talking a lot about saving up for college over the years, it's always been in the forefront of my mind. Uh, but my sister-in-law, who is due in, in July, uh, was over the other day and asked me, geez, how should we start saving for college? Uh, and, you know, I, I, I told her, as I tell many folks, is that uh, you know, we can get into the finer points later on, but it's great that you're thinking about it, and it's great that you're starting to do that. And, and the key thing is just to start. So I think everybody kind of hits that panic mode, uh, but mm-hmm. it's good to kind of confront that as opposed to kind of putting blinders on and hoping that something else works out. Right. So when you say just to kind of start, what would be your advice to someone who's maybe just had a kid or has been worrying about it and is is hearing that advice and saying, okay, he says I should just start. What should I do? Is it as simple as opening a savings account and just starting to put some money into that? Or is there a, a different step that you would take first? So, you know, there's a lot of different savings vehicles that are out there that can be used for college, and we can certainly talk about those vehicles. But I think the most important thing in the beginning is just start someplace mm-hmm. uh, because it's very easy to not choose the proper vehicle and go months and months and maybe even years and years uh, without saving because you're afraid of putting it in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you do that, you're losing out on potentially hundreds or, or thousands of dollars of savings that you would have done if you would have forced yourself to start. So right. I think that if you're really at the beginning stages, before you even have to choose a vehicle, um, the important thing, if you can't choose that vehicle right away, is to start something someplace, you know, most typically in some kind of savings accounts in the parent's name. Uh, would be the ideal scenario just to get started uh, before you choose that that vehicle that you're going to use. Okay. So one thing that I think uh, I hear people talking about anyway is this idea that if you save for uh, college, that then you're going to limit the opportunities to get financial aid. And do you think that's true? So there, that's one of the most common reasons. I, and I think there, I have really three common reasons that I haven't started saving yet. Uh, mm-hmm. One is that I don't have the money. Two is that I don't know where to put it. And three is because I don't want to lose out on any financial aid eligibility that my children might have. And the truth is, is that if you save in the right way, uh, that financial aid won't be a big issue. Uh, your savings won't have a big impact on that. The key thing here is, is that parents' savings, savings in the parents' names, which actually includes the three big ways that the government sets up for people to save for college, which is 529 plans, prepaid tuition plans, and Coverdell accounts, all of those accounts, along with other parentally owned assets, have a very small impact on financial aid. It's actually one of the least, uh, least impacted uh, things out there, whereas student-owned assets and student accounts out there have a much larger impact on financial aid. So if you're going to like sway one way or the other and you think you might have financial aid eligibility down the road, it's always best to save in the parents' names or in one of these, uh, these accounts that the government sets up for people to save uh, to limit the financial aid impact that you're going to have down the road. The key thing is no custodial accounts, UTMAs or UGMAs if you're going to have financial aid eligibility down the road. Okay, so you mentioned the 529 saving plan as one of those three um, ways that the government has set up for parents to save. But what if I'm not sure that my child's going to attend college in the state that I live in? You know, what if I want the whole country to be an opportunity for him or her? 
That's, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the big, bigger kind of uh, misnomers that's out there about 529 plans is that they're restricted to the state that you purchase the plan from or that the state that you invest in. Uh, and actually, 529 plans work very differently than that. 529 plans can be used at any college in the United States that offers federal financial aid. That's just about every school that you can think of, including community colleges and technical schools and trade schools, public schools and private schools, and almost 500 schools abroad. So as far as school choice goes within the 529 plan, I don't want to say it's unlimited, but from the United States standpoint, it's virtually unlimited. Mm -hmm. uh, the plans that you have to worry about as far as being restricted to a certain school or type of school or region of schools uh, would be the prepaid tuition plan. Prepaid tuition plans have a participating school list where you get the full payout at. Got you. Right. So if you are saving for a select group of schools and then your child decides, yeah, I don't like any of those schools, or even worse, they can't get into any of those schools, then you're in a little bit of trouble. But that's not what 529 plans are all about. That, that's exactly it. 529 plans have, uh, have a wide variety of colleges, almost every college in the United States, and prepaid tuition plans are more selective uh, from a participating school point of view. Gotcha. What if I have multiple kids? Should I have multiple accounts? Should I just do one account? What's the best way to go about that? So that's a really great question. So, and it really depends on what your saving strategy is and how you invest that money. For instance, if you're investing in the 529 plan, 529 plans have a great aspect of them that they're transferable uh, amongst a, a group of family members, which includes siblings. Uh, and so a lot of folks think that, geez, if I'm going to do a 529 plan, just for the ease of only having one account to control or contribute to, I'm going to only invest in one account. And for some folks, that might be okay. Um, but for a lot of folks, it might work better to have more than one account. And there are a number of reasons why. When you're investing in a 529 plan, depending on how you invest, uh, you may choose an age-based adjustment option. An age-based adjustment option is, a, is an investment option that when the kids are younger, is a little bit more aggressive. Um, and uh, has time to make up for potential losses you have, but hopefully you have some big gains there. But it's a little bit more volatile uh, than as you get older, it becomes a little bit more conservative to, to preserve the principle that you have in that account. It's a really kind of important aspect um, that, that folks need to realize that as you get closer to college, you really want to preserve what you have in that account and don't have big losses because if you're exposed to the stock market at that point, and you have what happened back in 2008 happen, and there's a big drop, you could lose a vast majority of your college savings. Mm -hmm. So if you're yeah. investing in an age-based adjustment option, and you have two kids that are different ages, you could be uh, too conservative for the younger child or too aggressive for the older child if you only have one account. Yep, that makes sense. And so generally I say, Two accounts is better, uh, and, and there's a number of other reasons why as well. You know, one thing is a lot of 529 plans send out mailers to the kids when you start investing. And, and, and as, as silly as it sounds, getting, getting actual mail uh, fr from one of these plans kind of excites kids sometimes. Uh, so I think there's, a, there's a kind of a secondary reason there as well. And the third reason is the kid at some point, if you're going to be spending money on this student for college, you need to have their own account to transfer the money into to actually spend it. So when it comes okay. time to spend, you can't spend out of your older child's account for your younger child, but you can transfer it from your older child's account to your younger child's account. Gotcha. Okay, so that makes sense. Last question for you is, what about if my student gets a scholarship? What do I do then? 
Sure. It depends on the college savings vehicle that you have. So, and that's why it's really important to debate um, at some point, which vehicle should I choose? There are some vehicles out there like parents' uh, general savings accounts or Roth IRAs, uh, for instance, are two popular vehicles that folks use that don't have restrictions on how you use the money. Um, may not give you all the benefits that some of these other ways may give you, uh, but then so if your child gets a scholarship, you're not too worried about it. You have a little extra cash in your pocket. You're really excited, in fact. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you exactly. Invest, if you've invested in the Coverdell or the 529 plan or the prepaid tuition plan, you may be a little bit more worried about that. So you have a couple of different ways to go. Uh, one would be the transferability. And that would be the, the first and foremost thing that on the top of my mind, is there somebody else, preferably a sibling or somebody within the family unit, that could use this money uh, so I can transfer it to them so we can still get the full value of this account? That would kind of be option number one. Um, that in thinking about, okay, if my child is going to have college expenses later on, uh, either later on in college or in graduate school, in holding the money until then. If you need to withdraw that money um, because your child earned a scholarship, you are actually allowed in any one of these accounts to withdraw from the account the amount of the scholarship. And you're going to be taxed on the earnings piece that you pull out. Uh, but normally there's a 10% penalty that goes along with using these accounts for non-college use. That 10% penalty is going to be waived for students who receive a scholarship so they don't punish children too harshly for doing well. Gotcha. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, my son's only 11, so we have a long ways to go before that happens. But um, we do have a 529 plan for him, and it would be nice to imagine a time where he gets a great scholarship and then we get to draw that money out and have it back without having to get too penalized for it. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for coming on and talking some basic savings for college stuff with us. I think the bottom line takeaway for me anyway is don't uh, let fear hold you back or you don't know what to do, hold you back from at least starting to put some money away, regardless of whether you just stick it in a savings account or do some of the plans that we've talked about here. Just start. And then uh, it's never too late to start either. So even if your child is in middle school, you can still start saving right now. Alex, thank you so much. Um, Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about bad essays next. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Every year during the admission season... Uh, Believe it or not, admissions officers and college counselors, and that's all of us at College Coach, we're all used to do the admissions, and now we do the college counseling. Um, We pretty much sit around and play some form of when you get together, not every day, but when you get together, you will never believe this essay that I just read. And for the record, it is really generally not good if your essay makes it into that conversation. My colleague, Sally Ganga, is back. She was here and I think, our very first show. But she's back today to talk about some of the more memorable essays that we have read. Uh, hi, Sally. Hi, Beth. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. So we titled this segment, I think you did actually, Essays of Infamy. Exactly. And we, we thought it would be kind of fun uh, because we often, like I said, we trade these stories back and forth and say, oh, my goodness, you'll never believe this. I mean, some of us actually have permanent files with essays that students have written that we just keep because every time you pull them out, it, you, you have to chuckle or just say to yourself, what was this person thinking? Um, and they're really good cautionary tales. And so we thought we might share some of them with you today. So, Sally. Give me, give me a, a good story or two of some essays that you've read um, that really made you go, wow, what was okay. this person Well, thinking? one of the ones that really astounded all of us in this particular admission office was a young woman who was very smart, very, very admissible at this highly competitive school, but her essay was about how homeless people should make themselves useful to society by participating in medical trials. Oh, they boy. saw it as a win-win because they would get free housing, and um, those of us who were not, who were lucky enough to not be homeless, would get to put off medical experimentation onto someone else. So, wow, so that made the rounds of the office, and actually, we were so concerned by it that <laughs> uh, we called the school. We talked to her college counselor, who was appalled, assured us that no one in the school had read the essay before she sent it out. Yep. And also assured us that this we were not talking about a Dr. Um, Mengele, if I'm yeah. saying that name right. So um, so that one has never, I don't even have that one on file, although I wish I did, but that one has never le- left my mind. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, I can only imagine that this is a student who sat down and thought, you know, I, I want to be someone who can help to cure society's ills, and, and maybe this is a good idea. I had it, and... Uh, Mm -hmm. I do think that in general, most teenagers have the best intentions and just sometimes it comes out. And most, hey, there are adults where things come out the wrong way too, but that's a doozy. Um, I read one uh, and it wasn't actually a student from my region. It was from a different region, but he wrote about um, his first kill. He killed a deer. He went hunting with a bow and arrow and killed a deer and it was... Um, particularly explicit description of 
sort of shooting the deer, hitting the mark, watching the deer die. Um, it was pretty disturbing. <laughs> and I think it highlighted for me a really good point for students. I mean, certainly there are probably places where, um, you know, hunting in and of itself is not actually a problem. There are lots of places where people hunt. Hunting has its purpose. Um, there are plenty of people who hunt for food. I think in this situation, actually, the student did hunt the deer for food. But anything that where what you're learning about the student is a bird's eye view of a time that he put another living creature to death. It's just not the the memory you want to leave someone with. I guess is the, how I would best put that. So, well, um, especially if he was particularly graphic about it. I mean, you have to kind of think about whether people. I mean, a good essay really puts the reader in the moment with you, but those of us who don't hunt probably don't want to be in that moment with you. Exactly. (laughs) So you have to imagine, that's a really good point. Does somebody want to be in that moment with you? Because if they don't, then you've lost them. And you don't want to lose your reader because your reader is the one who's going to probably make the decision about whether you get in or you don't. Exactly. All right, do we have any fun ones that are a little less um serious i know we've got a few of those too but i wonder if there are any fun ones that come to mind for you sure um well this i think this one probably qualifies as fun misguided but fun um so this actually um this was actually one that a colleague told me about um this student wrote an essay in response to a question about where he would spend a free day if he could spend it anywhere he chose mm-hmm. the playboy mansion grotto the playboy grotto <laughs> So, you know, I guess he thought that the Rat Pack, you know, Dino, et cetera, was go- or, or maybe he thought Hugh Hefner was on the admissions committee, and right. that's why he thought it was going to play well. <laughs> but- and, you know, I think it, that illustrates something where I do encourage students to kind of be themselves and not be always so serious all the time in their essays and show some personality, but you're right. You have to be careful what personality you're showing, and chances are pretty good that uh, your admissions officer at a university is probably not going to be jazzed about the idea that that's what you want to do with your free time. Uh, as right. a or even if they would be fine with it, it's like, is that what you want to highlight? I right. mean, wouldn't a trip to the bookstore or, you know, something? Wouldn't, I mean, I guess, to be fair to this kid, he did not use any of the stereotypes. He did not write about volunteering. He did, you know, he went yep. his own way. But, um, you know, think about what do you want the admissions committee to know about you. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yes. And then the, the, that the Playboy Mansion is your priority, probably not what you want them to know. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be that you'd go to a bookstore. It could be just that you might, you know, go play a game of Ultimate Frisbee or, I don't even know, some other, like maybe go to the movies by yourself because that's something you enjoy doing. I mean, it's always nice to get a peek into someone's personality, but to your mm-hmm. point, is that really the message you want to leave the admissions committee with. And I think yeah, we can it's true. Agree. It's true. You don't want them to come across as sanctimonious either. So if they want to play Ultimate Frisbee, that would actually be a great essay too. So I, exactly. I, yeah, I don't want to come down too hard on kids who just want to write about times when what they wanted to do was have fun. Yes, because having fun is overrated or underrated these days. And, and uh, <laughs> exactly. we want to bring back the fun. Um, so uh, I'm looking at a few here, and um, what about the idea of um, writing in somebody else's voice? We've had a few students do that where they pretend to be someone else, and um, I think you mentioned a story that you had about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, well, this one particular student wrote an essay in the voice of his father, 
but never explained that he was the one writing it. So, you know, we in the admissions office thought that this kid's father had just written his essays for him <laughs> and actually had been so clueless that hadn't even bothered to pretend that he was his son. It was extremely confusing. And so that was another situation where we called the guidance counselor to find out what was going on because you, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate this. I think the parents know this. You should not be writing your children's essays, right? Right, so, exactly. Yeah, Cardinal so we rule. called the guidance counselor. The guidance counselor said, looked into it, and apparently the, you know, the young man was trying to be creative, thought that it was, uh, you know, I think maybe he thought it was a little cringeworthy to be bragging about himself, so he felt more comfortable with the notion that his father would be saying good things about him, but never explained it anywhere in the application or in the essay that that's what he was doing. So just remember, you know, if you're doing something original, you know, take a step back from it, make sure people understand what you're trying to do. Exactly. Uh, and, and I have a story, it's, it's not really all that similar, but um, a student who had, um, was writing, was applying to some business programs, so was eager to show off um, his business acumen, which in theory, great. So you have a story that you can share that's going to speak directly to what you want to study. Um, but in this case, um, the student had decided to, um, he really enjoyed baking, believe it or not, and he was going to do a bake sale at his school. And so he... Um, basically talked his father into investing uh, about $100 in the business so that he could buy the materials that he needed. Again, this is not uncommon. Parents often fund, you know, provide seed money. Great. Um, so he set the, the, bake, the sort of um, bake sale up and made $50 and without even coming close to running out of all the materials that he bought with the original $100. Um, so he was a little bit afraid to tell his father about that. So he got his mother to give him some additional money so that he could show his father a profit. And then he basically ended this by talking about how he really, the fact that he was able to extract almost $200 from his parents um, without ever making a profit made him feel like a superstar and like he was going to be great in the business world. And he was, of course, applying to a program that had a real focus on ethics in business and oh was God. pointing to that as the sort of reason why he was interested in that program. I mean, there's so many different things wrong with that whole so scenario, right? First of all, yeah. First of all, he's a, I mean, you know, we can all cut kids slack uh, for not being, you know, great business people when they're 12 or whatever age he was, but um, doesn't highlight his skills. But worst of all, it shows that he's perfectly happy to manipulate and lie mm -hmm. to get yes. what he wants. And, right. um, you know, and that that's what makes him feel like a superstar. Exactly. That, I mean, it's just astonishing to think that, and, and that he didn't make the connection that it, that's an unethical thing to do, whether it's your parents or not. I guess he thought that taking money from his parents was perfectly ethical. Yes. Maybe that well, was the message. I guess. There were, so, there were <laughs> as you say, just many, many things wrong with that. And it's important to keep in mind that when you are reading these essays as an admissions officer, you're thinking about who the student's going to be on your campus and what kind of a roommate he or she is going to be, what kind of a teammate, classmate. And if you've got someone who is taking joy out of extracting money out of the people nearest and dearest to them, you do start to wonder, well, what's going to happen when they are on campus? And these are not people that are near and dear to them. So are they going to be extracting money from people left and right or doing worse? So, Yeah, I mean, I have to say just hearing the story, he sounds immensely dislikable. So right. even if you don't kind of further analyze it, 
you know, you, you just kind of think, what a spoiled brat. Mm-hmm. And that, and, you know, again, the kid could be a lovely person, but all you have to go on really is that essay. And so mm-hmm. you really have to be careful when you are presenting yourself and asking yourself, am I really presenting myself in the best light? Um, mm-hmm. And and we are going to talk a little bit about the absolute, you know, kind of on a more serious note, some of the things. But um, I, I will say that a couple of years ago, I had a student work on an essay where he had created a religion. And in the religion, he was the god of his religion. And the essay itself was very well written. And the, and the thought process that it went into why he decided to create a religion and, you know, why this was important to him was all thoughtful and interesting and showed that he was quite bright. But I could not get past the whole concept that in this religion, he was the God in that religion. And Mm -hmm. I shared it with a few other people who shared a similar concern, which is always a good way to know, yeah, my gut is right on about this. But I did end up having to really, neither he nor his dad could understand what I was talking about. They thought it was a great essay. And when I I had to kind of go through it point by point and really ask. The son actually did really get it, but it was the father who I had to take through step by step and push him to go beyond. Well, he knew his son. He knew he was really bright, um, but he had to take a much more critical and honest look at it. And when I was able to get him to do that and see how someone who didn't know him might perceive this, then mm-hmm. he said, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, actually, I can see that. And that's one thing I think Sally and I would both encourage all of you to do is to take a step back and ask yourself, you know, if this person didn't know me, would they get what I'm going for here? Exactly. So, yeah. I, I actually had a student, I had a similar situation where it was a student I was working with. She was a lovely young woman, and she was responding to an essay that asked her to tell about a time when she argued, she kind of went against the grain, she took mm-hmm. an unpopular point of view, um, for something she believed in. She basically made a stand on it. So she thought about one time when, in her debate club, she had taken the opposing view to everybody else and said that some people's lives are worth more than other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pointed out, to, I said, you can't write this essay. The <laughs> broader implications of this are phenomenally horrible. Yes. Um, and you, and the thing is, what she didn't realize is she knew that she had just taken that point of view because she was in a debate club. And the whole point of debate is that you can argue any position, no yes. matter how noxious that position might be. And no matter how much you do not her, believe in it. Yes, right. Yeah, I had to remind her that this essay was supposed to be something she believed in. And she thought about it and she went, oh my God, I basically <laughs> just advocated genocide. And I was like, exactly. So right. take that it- step back. Because, I mean... You know, I thought it was great. You know, I told her the overall point that she can argue any position is a strong one, but that's not what this question is, and that's not what they're going to get from this. Yes. That taking a step back is such an important component in this entire process. And one thing I always want people to understand is you're going to get one shot at applying. And um, you have to make sure that what you send is really representative of who you are or at least of those most positive elements of who you are. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of on a more serious notes, the things to stay away from. I know there's one that we talked about that's kind of a gimme and kind of fun, and then a few others that are more serious in general. But we agreed there was one thing that you should avoid above any and all, and there would never, ever be a circumstance where it would be appropriate to write about. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> please, please don't write about having sex. Please yeah. don't ever, never, 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 ever is that a good idea. I've read those essays from time to time in my 10 years in admissions, and it was always just, just cringeworthy moment. Yeah. Believe me that no one wants to read about that. That's, yes, I could second, third, and fourth that. Um, nothing will get you into the file, the, uh, the I'm going to keep this one forever, then writing about that, and mm-hmm. um, nothing will get you out of the pool faster. It's just, it shows such a lack of insight into what this is, what is appropriate and what is not, um, almost mm-hmm. more so than any of those other things that we have just talked about. So you don't want to do that. What are some yeah. others? that are a little bit more probably serious that you, you for sure wouldn't, would probably not want to write about that actually people might be considering writing about? Sure. I mean, something that happens really commonly that I think people do with the best of intentions is they'll write an essay that's sort of condescending to another people of another country, people of another race or class. You know, they write, for example, people will write about a mission trip. Mm-hmm. Um, to another country, and they'll write about the poor people and helping the poor people, and it's it comes across as very condescending. Yep. Um, and and I I do want to say that I understand that these trips can be really eye opening for students, that they can learn a lot during those trips. But um, and I would say like a milder form of this, which is less condescending but still doesn't work, is I see students who write now I understand poverty, and the response is no, you don't. You come right. from a middle class background. You spent one week in a very poor community, so so just don't claim someone else's experience for your own, and be careful how condescending it sounds when right. you write an essay like this. Exactly, and we had someone, a colleague here, who had students submit an essay like that, and along with a photo of herself surrounded by children, and the, and the caption on the photo was, me and the poor. Exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. There's so many things wrong with that. Let's start with the grammar. Me yeah, always yeah. comes second, but anyway. Um, yeah. We are. We have a couple more minutes. So, what are what are a couple others that that we sort of generally feel are no nos and to stay away from? Sure. I really. I mean, a mild one that doesn't offend anyone, but just doesn't do well is essays that focus on being very young, like when students talk about, you know, something that happened to them when they were five. I mean, in general, you know, these essays about how cute you you know that sort of depend on you being a cute youngster is a bad idea. You really want to focus more ideally on the high school years. Um, Another thing, too, that I think, again, not offensive at all, but just doesn't help you, is um, when students will write about their maybe anorexia, bulimia, depression, something like that. Sometimes you have to write about it because you have to explain problems in your record, but just know that that can send up some red flags. So, again, this is not an offensive essay in any way, shape, or form, but it's, it's, it, send up, it can send up some red flags. So you just have to be very, very careful because you don't want the college to think about you as a depressed person ultimately. Right. Right? So if exactly. you do write about it, you certainly need to write about what you've done since then that has been that has really gotten you past this how you've turned this tough experience into something positive exactly it has to be focused on the fact that you have recovered and mm-hmm. how you did that and how you plan to avoid relapsing in the future but i think a general rule of thumb is that unless you need it to explain an inconsistent record i would agree this is not is this the story you want the admissions office to be focused on exactly. and that's a, a big question exactly they have very they're like i think um one of our colleagues, Eric Goza, talked about it, the application this way. It's limited real estate. So in yep. that limited real estate, what do you want them to know about you? 
Exactly. So highlighting the probably what's the worst part of your life is probably not what you want them to highlight, even though it was clearly important to you. Exactly. Sally, thank you so much. It was super helpful to have you on and share some of these stories. And people listening must be thinking, oh, my goodness, let me take a look at what my child is planning to write about. Um, (laughs) I will tell you that one of the things we do a lot of here is actually uh, turning students away from ideas um, and things that they think they want to write about and sort of helping them understand, nope, that's not such a great idea. Um, So, Sally, you're going to be back next week, right? We're going to talk gap years. Um, Yeah, we took one. one, so I'm very happy to talk about it. Thanks exactly. so much for having me on this week, Beth. Absolutely. Well, we loved having you here. And uh, I do want to say to everyone who's listening, well, I wanted to thank Sally and all of my guests today. And Sally is, as we just mentioned, going to be back. We're going to talk gap years, what they are, why students might consider them, um, where to go to find out more. Um, we're also going to be talking about how to make a successful tr- financial transition to college. So what happens after that first tuition payment and really um, doing a good job going into the college years financially. And unfortunately, one unfortunate hallmark of the college process these days is really the incredible amount of stress and pressure that can weigh on students and parents. Um, And we're going to talk about some things students and parents can do to try to ease some of that pressure. Uh, And I did want to also say if you have ideas for an upcoming segment or questions you'd like us to answer, then send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We got a couple last week that I'm actually going to, I'm planning some segments around. So I appreciate everyone who um, sent us some suggestions. I also want to encourage people to check out our archives. There's all kinds of good stuff on there. Uh, and you can also download the shows for free on iTunes. Don't forget, come back next week. We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.